The Deeper Dig is sponsored by VITA, the Vermont Economic Development Authority. Since 1974, VITA has provided financing assistance to thousands of Vermont businesses, entrepreneurs, farm and forestry enterprises, renewable energy producers, and many others. VITA's role is simple, to help businesses grow and create good jobs. They work closely with banks, credit unions, and other lenders to develop financing solutions that help promote a vibrant and diverse economy. If you want to grow your business, head to VEDA.org and let VITA help you. From VT Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, what is the future of Vermont's congressional representation? Vermont's three members of Congress have served a combined 93 years in the U.S. House and Senate. They've accrued an unusual amount of power and influence for one small state delegation. But they won't remain in Washington, D.C. forever. On Tuesday, VT Digger convened a panel of veteran political professionals to talk about what a vacancy would mean for the way Vermonters are represented in Congress. Today, we'll hear highlights from that conversation. Here's who you'll hear from. Liz Bankowski was the campaign manager and chief of staff for Governor Madeleine Kunin. And among other roles, she served on the transition teams of President Bill Clinton and Governor Peter Shumlin. Denise Casey owns and operates Casey Inc., which is a public affairs, media, and communications firm. Denise served in a variety of roles for Governor Jim Douglas. And Julia Barnes is a Burlington-based political consultant who served as New Hampshire state director and then national field director for Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. You'll also hear from VT Digger managing editor Paul Heinz and political reporter Lola DeFort. Paul takes it from here. We will start by acknowledging the elephant in the room. Within the next few years, Vermont's congressional delegation is likely to look a little bit different than it does today. Senator Patrick Leahy, who's 81 years old, has said that he'll decide within the next few months whether to seek a nearly unprecedented ninth term next November. Already the fifth longest serving U.S. Senator in history, he'd set a new record if he served out that term. Senator Bernie Sanders, who just turned 80, has served in Congress since 1991. He's up for re-election in 2024. And Representative Peter Welch, the whippersnapper of our delegation, is a mere 74 years old. He's up for re-election every two years, and he's widely expected to seek a seat in the Senate if one becomes available. Quick disclosure, I used to work for Peter Welch uh, for about two and a half years as his spokesperson uh, about a decade ago. Together, these three men have served a combined 93 years in Congress. To put it another way, I'm 37 years old, and the year that I was born, one of these men was already in the U.S. Senate, one was mayor of Burlington, and one was minority leader of the Vermont Senate. In recent months, those of us who follow Vermont politics have been particularly focused on Senator Leahy's plans, and so have up-and-coming politicos. Diane Derby, who until last week served as a field representative for Leahy, wrote in a commentary for VT Digger yesterday, quote, it is apparent that there is a strong pool of congressional hopefuls waiting, some more eagerly than others, for a signal. My inbox is a pretty clear indicator of that, unquote. So we will get right to it and ask the question that everyone is asking, and then we'll quickly move on from that question and tackle more substantive matters. Lola, why don't you start us off? What are you hearing about Senator Leahy's plans? Will he or won't he run for re-election next year? I'm generally hearing that that is unknowable at this point, although it is the subject of wild speculation uh, among Vermont politicos. Uh, I had one conversation with someone who was certain that they that you know he he would not run again, and then they called me back five minutes later with this new piece of information that they thought indicated that he absolutely would be running. 
And I, you know, a lot of people take him at his word when he says that he hasn't decided yet. And it's very possible that this is still unknown to the senator himself. Julia, what do you hear? And is your inbox blowing up much like Diane Derby's? Yes, uh, a lot of people are talking about this right now, but this is also the same kind of conversation that came up in 2018. Uh, it came up when there was a you know slim chance that Bernie would be nominated as a labor secretary. Um, I think it's indicative that folks are uh, really interested and obviously invested in um, in how our federal delegation shakes out. But I think the thing that the thing that I think is important and that I'm sharing with people that I talk to is that the chatter means very little at this point in time. Um, if Senator Leahy decides to run again, his continued service in the Senate will be uh, critical to any chance of retaining a functional Democratic majority in the Senate. And additionally, his leadership on appropriations means additional influence for Vermont as a state and for our values, combating climate change, dealing with the pandemic, embracing uh, economic systems that work for everybody. The sands are rapidly shifting in Washington and Senator Leahy, like most Senate Democrats, are in crucial position for the country at large and are going to play a critical role in uh, moving forward the extremely popular Build Back Better agenda. So I think that Senator Leahy's head is exactly where it needs to be. I think that his focus on the really, really important work that's happening in Washington is paramount to speculation. And I think regardless of, of how we speculate, nobody is going to be able to determine uh, what the immediate future holds. So putting aside the question of will Leahy run, Liz, I'm wondering if you could tell me whether you think he should run or do you think that it's time for new blood in the delegation? So I approach that question as the one person here who is a boomer. And so um, the conversation is very much part of my own personal life and how I've been thinking in recent years, which is much different than the way I thought five and 10 years ago. And so my question, not just for Senator Leahy, but also for Senator Sanders and for Congressman Welch is when is it someone else's turn? It's a really important question. And in Vermont particularly, because we only have three spots. So I think it's interesting, you know, when we're little kids, that's one of the first things we have to learn. <laughs> when is it someone else's turn? And it's hard. And when you're older and you're pondering, is it time to move away from the table, give someone else a seat? it's also hard. When is it someone else's turn? I think this has to be a part of the conversation with the three of them. And the reason I feel that way is we have spent recent years talking so much about the need to change our demographics. We need to bring younger people here. We need them to stay. They'll stay if they see a career path, if they see opportunity and possibilities for themselves. So this isn't only just about members of Congress. I mean, this is across the spectrum. I see this, this is a very serious discussion within the business community. There are handoffs happening. So I don't think it exactly sends the signal we want to say that there's a lock on these seats. So don't even think about it. I think the question needs to be asked is, is it time to really participate in a generational handoff? And in that sense, I would ask each of them, you know, when do you think it's someone else's turn? Denise, what do you think? 
Senator Leahy is the president pro tem of the Senate. He's the chair of the Appropriations Committee, which means that he wields tremendous power over how federal dollars are spent, how those dollars make their way to Vermont. And just this year, um, he's played a part in bringing earmarks back to Congress, which basically means that uh, the state is probably in line for um, literally a couple hundred million dollars more than it otherwise would be in um, funding for projects that Leahy himself will select. Do you think that, that Senator Leahy is too big to fail? Well, so I think it's clear uh, that if Senator Leahy does move on, that the, the chairmanship of the Appropriations Committee isn't going to go to the freshman senator from Vermont. Uh, and as it stands now, as you mentioned, our other senator, Senator Bernie Sanders, chairs the Budget Committee. So this is not a small thing. We have enormous influence in Washington, given our very small delegation uh, and the size of our state. And that is uh, as a result of the, the 10 years of our, of our delegation. But we need to be realistic. It has to change at some point, right? And so with that is going to come a shift in power and a, a shift in influence and new leaders. And so for me, it's really just, it's a matter of when it's bound to happen, probably sooner and later, and there will be changes for Vermont. And, and that's a natural and healthy thing. You know, and Paul, we need to add to that, that Vermont gets more than it gives. So, and there is also as you know, the small state rule or whatever it is, where the, the small states, there's a floor. So, you know, use COVID as an example. I, I looked at some data from the Peterson Institute, you know, uh, with the two big programs, the average per capita for Vermont was $4,000 per person. The average for New York State was $1,200. So I agree that it is a huge impact. How often you get to have the chair of the Appropriations Committee, the budget, they have, there is a lot of clout. So all that has to go into the mix. But I think we also have to look at where do we stand? Any, you know, there's a lot of discussion on in Congress about the earmarks. And we don't know where it's going to land. They supposedly will be very transparent. They may be limited. Um, and, you know, whoever gets elected is going to have the ability to do some of that because the whole point is then they have something to, you know, regular horse trading around votes and other things. So, so I think the whole context has to be, yeah, this comes at a time when, you know, and again, I think a, a lot of it, particularly with Senator Leahy, but we can't reach the conclusion that we would, you know, again, given our own population dynamics and what we want to be, that we would close the door for 40 years because somebody might then get to be in that position. And let's remember how they get there. You get there by being there. You know, that's it. And your, and your party is in power. So I think it's all got to be part of their context. To, to your point, Liz, there's this interesting awkwardness that comes up when I talk to a lot of people about the amount of money that Vermont has received in the COVID relief packages, which are you know, very disproportionate amounts compared to what other states have received because of that small state minimum, which uh, Senator Leahy is credited for, which has allowed Vermont to really contemplate some really transformational changes. Um, like that money is really not trivial. It, it is a huge deal for Vermont. And it is almost not something that we would have at our disposal without 
you know, having the chairman of the appropriations committee in our congressional delegation. But people feel a little bit weird about it. You know, they will sometimes ask, like, is it right that we have this disproportionate influence? And, you know, the reason that the Senate works for us right now is not because it is an entirely representative body. Um, and so I think there's there's some really interesting tension about you know, that. Lola, Lola, even on that point, the, the, the uh, COVID packages also worked because the mostly, re- the totally other states, small states are all Republican, Republican rural states in Vermont. And they wanted this as, as much, this is a real way for these smaller states to be protected. So, and I mean, it wasn't like an earmark. It wasn't just us. It was a group, it was the Republican states plus us all acknowledging let's, let's have a good floor of protection for our states. And, you know, again, I can't imagine that's going to happen again uh, anytime soon. And what a boon it was for us, because we don't have enough population to raise the taxes to do all the things we're getting to do with this money. That's another way to think about it. It it gets to if we don't expand our own tax base and have more people participating, so great we can do these projects. But, you know, that didn't look like it was going to be possible just based on our own state revenues. And just to be a little bit more explicit about what I think Lola is getting at here, uh, those small states that are benefiting from these formulas are, uh, yes, they're, they're small, they're rural, they're also mostly white, right? And it is the larger, more uh, demographically diverse states that are losing out um, due to this advantage that Vermont and other tiny states have. So awkward indeed uh, to hold on to that. <laughs> Denise, uh, Senator Leahy hasn't faced much opposition at all since I would say 1992, um, although some might disagree with me about that, uh, when your former boss, Jim Douglas, challenged him before you were involved, of course, with his campaigns, he probably would have won if you'd been working for him. But even then, Leahy beat Douglas by nearly 11 points. If Leahy were to choose to run again, do you think that he would draw any real primary or general election challenge? No. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I have more to say than that. But uh, but seriously, no. Uh, joking aside, I, I think it's Leahy's decision to make. And I think it's safe to assume that Democrats, however eager they are to represent us in Washington, will hold off and not challenge him in a primary. I mean, it would be a fool's errand of epic proportions to do it. Um, similarly, as you know, there are usually Republican challengers in the general election. But as you said, none have come close um, since Douglas's challenge in, in 92. So I, I think no. Yeah. Just to echo this, I mean, most of the, you know, really credible potential contenders have already said, I won't run if late he is, you know, going to run again. Uh, we start off with one of the elephants in the room to turn to another of them. Our delegation has more in common with one another than their age. Uh, they're also all men needless to say. Um, One of our audience members, Molly Turco of Norwich, wrote us the following, quote, Vermont is still the only state that has never sent women to DC. Are Sanders, Lahir, Welch mentoring women to help ensure the next wave of legislators is more diverse? What do you think is the timeline and pathway to a woman being elected as a representative or senator? Who in the pipeline has the most potential? I'll add another uh, question from Patricia of Winooski who wrote us, quote, why has no one with the Vermont media outlet pressed, really pressed each member of the congressional delegation 
on this elephant in the room question. After decades and decades of time in Congress, why haven't they made the decision to finally give up the power, prestige, and perks they enjoy and give women a realistic chance at getting elected to Congress to represent Vermont? Liz, you helped elect the first and to date only woman to serve as governor of Vermont. Uh, why do you think the state has had such a poor track record of electing women to statewide and federal office? And do you think that would change if there is an opening in the delegation? Well, you know, there are few, few on-ramps and really in terms of Congress, there's none. We, we just talked about, um, you know, Senator Leahy's got a lock on the seat and as does Senator Sanders, as does Congressman Welch. And, you know, so, um, on the other hand, you know, we have about, um, we're like eighth in the nation in gender equity in our legislature with about 40% of women serving and we have a very robust pipeline. It isn't a lack of talent or ambition. There are a number of um, potential women candidates, pretty sophisticated about all this, but they, they don't have anywhere to go. And just to deviate for a minute, but it's so pertinent on this whole issue. I don't know if you heard it uh, reported on the news this weekend. There was a study just out of Tulane University and the finding was that girls are being socialized to lose their political ambition. And it's the, the, the experiment they ran is they asked girls starting at age six to draw a picture of a political leader at work. And when they did that, 52% of them drew women. When they asked them again to do it at age 12, 25% of them drew women. So what happened? The bottom line is you can't be what you cannot see. And this is, a, this is an issue we don't identify enough, the need for this change in our own state. You can't be what you cannot see. So, you know, again, we do have um, a group of women, representation does matter, true representation. It's not exactly what we've got right now. And it is, um, you know, it has to do not just with, with women, we're all in all our organizations steadfast in our determination and our uh, DEI, our diversity, equity and inclusion work. And we know it's not like enough to play lip service anymore. It's not like you can say, oh, I get it, I'm your ally. It's, it's not good enough. And I think it's the same. Um, we have a number of women, I think, it's nice to have others speak on their behalf, but they're quite able to speak for themselves. And I, I hesitate about providing a list because a list sets limitations. But I think it's so important that we highlight that we do have this robust pipeline. And I'll ask Denise to add other names, but you know, the, the obvious ones and we know them, you know, Becca Ballant, who's our Senate Pro Tem, Molly Gray, who's our Lieutenant Governor, Jill Krowinski, who's our Speaker, Keisha Rahm, who's a Chittenden County Senator, Sue Minter, Sue Minter, who who ran for governor a while ago and is the executive director of Capstone Community Action. And then people like the former GMP CEO, Mary, CEO Mary Powell. Everyone I just mentioned has got sterling credentials and women's credentials usually have to be uh, the gold standard. So, um, you know, again, and Denise, from your perspective, wouldn't you say also that we've got a pretty robust pool 
Sure. I like lists because I think they force us to think outside the box. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know we'll get into this, or I hope we'll get into this a little later, but I think that campaigns are interesting enough these days um, that if a candidate is viable, even if they're not um, you know, from a, a, a list of people who've been groomed or are expected to run, they do, they can really stand a chance. Um, but that said, you know, I'll just add, add a couple of names. Um, what about um, Agency of Natural Resources Secretary Julie Moore, uh, Commerce and Community Development Secretary Lindsey Curley, uh, Governor Phil Scott has three bright women leaders um, who are very young on his senior staff, uh, Brittany Wilson, Deputy Chief of Staff, Kendall Smith, uh, who is a policy advisor, uh, Rebecca Kelly, communications. There's Jade Person Johnson as well. So these are, uh, you know, I don't know about their interest in running. I've not had conversations with them. I don't think that that matters at this point. I think what really matters is that these are strong, smart, respected uh, women leaders. And it's nice to see them in public service where they can begin to see themselves as potential candidates for office. Well, I wonder if you could tell us what you're observing out there um, in the world of Vermont politics about um, who's who is really actually making moves right now to prepare themselves um, for the possibility of a vacancy. We've we've named a, a number of people um, who could be real contenders, but are you getting the sense that anyone is is really actively uh, campaigning right now, or sort of forming proto campaigns um, to prepare for the possibility that there might be a, a vacancy? I mean, I think the the first person that people think of is, is Molly Gray, who is acting like a candidate in every way except for declaring the fact that she is a candidate. Rebecca Ballant obviously also comes to mind. She has said that she would almost certainly run if Leahy did not. And, and Keisha Rahm is often also floated as a possibility. I think those are the three that are most likely to run. Um, Jill Krawinski is also, you know, considered a possible future candidate, but it's almost certain that she will not run for Congress, especially, or at least not in, you know, the next cycle. Julia, I'm going to uh, give you the big bucket of cold water uh, to dump on this mm. conversation, if you so choose. Um, you've worked on a lot of campaigns. Um, you know that it takes quite a bit to run for Congress, money, train staff, media training, digital savvy. It's not the kind of thing that you can just, you know, just because your name is on a list doesn't mean that you are ready for, you know, a, a pretty tough challenge. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of describe some of those barriers that any candidate would face of any gender, of any background. Um, and I wonder if you think that might whittle down the list of potential candidates. Yeah, I, thanks. I think it will absolutely whittle down the list of potential candidates. I want to, you know, couch my comments by saying I think that the list that we've discussed today that Liz and Denise brought up is a great starting point. Um, but this is, you know, running for federal office, running for Congress, whether it be Senate or uh, or the House, is it is an undertaking of massive proportions, of which I think a lot of Vermont politicos don't have a realistic sense of what that. Uh, endeavor looks like. Not only does it require an extensive amount of fundraising, but the way that we communicate with voters is shifting really, really dramatically and even faster since the pandemic. So modern candidates and modern congressional candidates really need to be well-versed in 
uh, new and um, innovative ways of voter contact. This is not the kind of race that you're going to win on lawn signs and honking waves. This is the type of race that you're going to have to invest real money in digital acquisition and persuasion. You're going to have to have a really well synthesized and shared brand that is going to allow voters to identify your values, particularly in a, in a crowded primary. Um, and additionally, you're going to need to find the kind of um, alliances at the national level that will help make sure uh, you're able to find an endeavor that, you know, despite being a small state is going to cost a lot. So yeah, there are going to be some real obstacles. And I think advice I would share with really anybody, I think we will have many women running for Congress in the next couple of cycles. I think that those folks are going to need, will need more donations, better political infrastructure, more national endorsers, and frankly, like a campaign plan that will surpass anything Vermont has seen by leaps and bounds. Um, so what I am saying to, to everyone who is thinking about it is uh, it's time to level up your political game uh, and start thinking about how to um, how to position yourself now. And, and how should they contact you to hire you to run their campaign? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you don't have to answer that. Denise, um, I'd love to hear you uh, elaborate on that a little bit. And I'll just note that it's been 16 years uh, since Vermont has had an open congressional seat. Um, so that was 2006. That was just a few years into the Iraq war, which was sort of a major issue at the time. And campaigns have changed enormously since that time, uh, as Julia has has noted. I wonder if you could tell us how else are things different um, and, and what you think someone would need to be prepared for to run. Sure. I mean, everything Julia just said. Uh, and, you know, my, when I think about this uh, and what Vermonters are going to experience, it's like, hold on. You haven't seen anything yet. I, I mean, that, that really is the, the truth. You know, the one important point I would add to what I thought was really spot on by Julia is that, you know, we are not, you know, campaigns are not uh, determining the likelihood that you'll support a candidate any longer based on your previous voting record or whether or not you signed a petition at the Addison County Fair and Field Days. Uh, they know what car you drive. They know which credit cards you have. They know where you live. They know where you shop. They know what you like on Facebook. They know the ads you click. They know the Insta posts. I mean, th this is scary, the level of information that micro-targeting and really smart campaigns are applying. And just like those Facebook ads that get you to buy those shoes that were made out of water bottles, they just stalk you. Uh, with targeted information. So uh, really it's impossible to overstate the savvy that will be applied uh, to these campaigns and the amount of money that will pour in. Uh, consultants, you know, high, uh, highly skilled consultants are 25 to $50,000 a month uh, just to get on board. You know, this is sort of the big time. And with the balance of the Senate uh, at stake, even though this is little old Vermont, uh, this will be a big, big race because it should be, one would think it should be a, a safe democratic seat, but they won't take anything for granted. So I would just say gone are the days of the honking waves and the milk bowl. And folks are just sitting behind the computer, um, manipulating, um, compelling uh, voters to, to like a candidate. So one, one, little bit counter thinking to that. I've never understood why you can run successfully for governor for what, 
400, 500,000 now, which is a lot more, but it's going to cost you 2 million or more to run for the same number of votes in the same. And one of the things about this is these campaigns that are driven by Washington are ridiculous. And I've seen it even play itself out here when people running bring in all the Washington consultants and all the Washington, everything you have to do. And it, you're in this ridiculous situation. And oftentimes with state races, they're out of touch. So I think, yes, it'll be formidable. The money thing will be real. But I, I almost feel the first bit of advice I would give a, a woman candidate is don't let the Washington consultants drive what you're doing. Because in Vermont, you still have to get around and do all of this. Yeah. And I, and I agree. And I agree to that to an absolute extent. But you're talking, there's also like a level of specialty that just doesn't exist in, oh, no, I, in terms of what people yeah. can do. So yeah. I think that there is like absolutely an argument to be made for not centering your campaign around the ideas of Washington consultants by any means. But I will also say that um, you're going to have a hard time finding a reliable pollster that lives in oh, no, um, no. that know, lives in Addison County. You know, <laughs> so, way back, way back when I ran a campaign, I didn't. I reached right into Boston for a top-notch political consultant. Right, it wasn't you know, and everybody does that. And there's some criticism. Why didn't you hire all Vermont? But yeah, so there's a balance. I think is the point. Yeah. There's also, you also have to think about the need for investment in a modern campaign is not just about finding like a digital operation that can track you based on whether or not you bought a Prius. Uh, It's also about making sure you're investing in enough people resources that you can have a real organizing team in the state. Um, You can see as many ads as you want on television or on Facebook, but the truth is, is that relational organizing and talking to your neighbors is still fundamentally the most important way for voters to be reached by these campaigns. And a good field staff and a good infrastructure is worth investing in and it's expensive. Sticking with the theme of money for just a moment, Representative Welch, I think is, like I said earlier, widely expected to run for the Senate if there is an opening. He has not said that. He's very good at dodging that question when you ask him. But he's He has quite a bit of money in the bank from his congressional campaigns, and he would be in a position to raise money really quickly, given his existing connections in Washington. Um, I wonder if you think that that, uh, and, and I'll direct this to you, Julia, um, to start with, do, do you think that is too much to overcome as a challenger? Do you think that Peter Welch would have too much of a leg up um, if he chose to run for a vacant Senate seat? Um, or do you think that he might face some real opposition from those who would argue that someone who's a woman or someone who's younger um, or someone who's a person of color should be representing uh, Vermont instead in the Senate? I think that anybody that would uh, seek to challenge Congressman Welch in that matchup would have to take some serious, serious pause. Um, Not only are there, does he already have the advantage of being able to create a good pool of fundraising for his campaign, but he's also extraordinarily popular in Vermont. Um, He is the person that is demonstrating right now, the kind of uh, values and coalition work that we need in Washington. He's doing this with the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure package. He was one of the few members who met with President Biden yesterday and has been absolutely shepherding some extremely popular legislation for a very long time, including lowering drug prices. Um, I think people would also evaluate that and smart potential candidates would evaluate 
what impact they would have not only on the immediate race, but also on their future potential were they to undertake a primary that would challenge such a popular congressman, also while Democrats are holding such uh, razor thin majorities. So bottom line, I think that Peter Welch is so popular. Uh, he does an exceptional job uh, for Vermonters. He is the embodiment of the progressive values that I like to see in Washington, and he has the best chance of winning a contested race, hands down. Julia, I would I would just add to that. Uh, he's also the most accessible member of our yes. delegation. So uh, uh, even though he's busy, he travels to Washington, he's still um, back home uh, at least some part of most weeks. He regularly attends events when his schedule permits. He, uh, he's genuinely curious about things that are going on in Vermont. You, you, you see him out and about. He's responsive when there are issues that folks want to raise to him uh, in a way that our senators simply aren't. Uh, and so yes. I think that that's another a distinguishing factor for Congressman Welch that will play very well, whatever he decides to do. Agreed. He's a he's a testament to his office. And I think um, anyone who is looking to make their way to uh, Washington um, would be wise to to give it serious pause uh, if it meant going up against Congressman Welch. I'll just play devil's advocate for a moment, because uh, I think that uh, much of what you guys have said, I would agree with. But, you know, though he has served in Congress for Six, 16 years now, plus 16 years now, he has not faced a real campaign in all of those years. And arguably, he's perhaps forgotten how to campaign hard um, in that time. Do you think that would be a challenge for him? Or do you think that wouldn't really matter? And I'll put that question to Liz. I don't know. You know, I, I just, again, with everything that preceded this, there's so much pent up talent, ambition, People who don't see themselves in the picture want to be seen in the picture. I'm not so sure someone wouldn't do it. Um, yeah, all, all the reasons given why it would be so formidable and so like, are you crazy? I, I, um, I you know, because we're back to saying that they, we, we, there are there, people get a lock on these seats. So don't you even dare think about it. And, you know, I'd like to see the reverse happen. I'd like to see yeah, I, yeah, I, primary. I'd like to see everybody get into it. I'd like to see Curtis Reed from my part of the world, um, a black Vermonter who's done more in the schools and with the police and created, I mean, I'd like to see, I'd like to see them all get in it. It would be good for our state. So there are yeah. all those reasons why, you know, don't even think about it. I, I, you know, again, it's the benefit of being old now. I would encourage people to think about it. What have you got to lose? That's what I always tell candidates. What have you got to lose? Just that you lose, big deal. You went around the state, you got to meet a lot of great people. You had wonderful conversations. So at the end of the day, if you really feel like I just need to put myself out there, I would discourage people from doing it. I just, I just want to be clear. My argument is not that people shouldn't think about it. And I think I agree with you, Liz, that it would be absolutely wonderful for us to see new representation in Vermont. The reality of a potential contested primary against Peter Welch really does paint an extremely clear picture. This is a logistical undertaking with an extraordinarily popular and, as Denise said, accessible politician who absolutely embodies the values of Vermont. So the question is, 
when does leaning in actually allow you to take advantage of the situation? My point here is that I think is that situation is not going to be ten- to people's advantage. Doesn't mean folks can't try, just realistically and logistically, it's going to be very difficult. Lola, I'm going to ask you this question first, and then I'll go to Denise with the same question. It's from Graydon Wilson of Newport. Um, and Graydon writes, quote, Governor Phil Scott has previously said that he does not have any interest in running for a congressional office, whether in the Senate or the House. If Pat Leahy declines to run next year, what is the likelihood that Governor Scott will throw his hat in the ring? Well, what is your, uh, what's your hot take on that one? Again, I think it's not knowable whether or not he will run. I think he would face enormous pressure to run uh, from national Republicans because he would stand a good chance of winning. Um, I mean, there was one poll from a few months ago that showed him in a basically statistical tie in a head-to-head race with Leahy himself. Um, he is an enormously popular uh, governor. Obviously, it would be very hard for him to figure out how to position himself against the argument that electing him would hand the Senate over to Mitch McConnell. I think that that would be an extraordinarily difficult argument to make in Vermont. But I think he will face enormous pressure to to run. And that if he did, obviously, he would receive enormous support from, from the RNC. So Denise, uh, I want you to answer that question. I'll also add a little bit more to the question, if you can remember sure. it all. Um, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll note, and, and I think it was Liz earlier who mentioned that, that Vermonters do tend to elect Republicans to serve as governor. Um, but the last Republican that Vermonters have elected to Congress was Jim Jeffords in 2000. Um, and by the year 2000, Jim Jeffords wasn't really much of a Republican anymore um, and formally left the party a year later. What specific challenges do Republicans face when running for federal office in Vermont, um, in addition to the Mitch McConnell argument that Lola mentions? Sure. So, okay, there are a bunch of parts to this. Um, uh, so first, you know, there isn't a question in my mind that uh, Washington, D.C. couldn't benefit from a leader like Phil Scott. That said, I think it's highly unlikely uh, he would run. He's said as much. He tends to say what he means. Something could change, but he's been pretty clear so far. Um, the fact is, though, a Republican is going to have a really hard time with a congressional or Senate race. You know, federal office is very different from uh, leading as a governor. Governor is an executive leader. Vermonters are looking for somebody who can run things. When we think about Congress, we think about political values and positions and issues like the reproductive rights, health care policy, judicial appointments, even the question of who are you going to caucus with? Are you going to caucus with the Republicans? Would be a, a, pose a huge, huge hurdle for a Republican candidate. And, you know, you mentioned 2006, the last time there was a truly contested race for Congress, we had General Martha Randall challenge then state senator uh, Peter Welch. This is the first woman to serve as an adjutant general in the country, uh, a moderate, a decorated military leader. Yet that campaign, uh, I mean, I, I, I remember it very acutely. That campaign was not about her record her resume, her experience, her leadership skills, her qualifications. It was a campaign about the federal, you know, the national Republican Party platform, which happens to be at a step with most Vermont voters. It's just a fact. 
Uh, and so she really struggled in that campaign, despite, you know, being a, a really incredibly uh, strong candidate. So, you know, again, uh, running a campaign uh, for a Republican for federal office is just not going to be about uh, your experience. It's going to be about the National Republican Party platform. And, and that is a massive hurdle for anyone, including uh, Governor Phil Scott, to clear. I'm going to take another question from our audience. One of our viewers um, right, named Sam. Sam writes, Julia, as a progressive, what progressive female candidates do you see as potential frontrunners? Um, I think that this goes to the bigger question of whether or not um, a capital P progressive could run for federal office. I think that there are some wonderful progressive women leaders in the state. Um, Selena Colburn is the first one that comes to mind when I think about it. But the distinction is of progressive versus Democrat is less important in my mind, federal race. Uh, if we're talking about the progressive party of Vermont as it exists now, I think it would be very hard for them to summon the infrastructure to lift a candidate to federal office. I also think that our Vermont Democrats have the values in Washington that match where the Congressional Progressive Caucus are, where the Democrats on the left are, uh, and the differentiations exist here in the state and not necessarily in D.C. I think that's important when you're talking about running for federal office. I think that distinction is important. Additionally, on the spectrum in Congress, a progressive and a Democrat would be in the same caucus. It's it's a, just a differentiation of parties we have here in the state. And logistically, I think a Democratic nominee would have many resources to rely on in a contested race that would not be available to a progressive. I also think some of the success we've seen of progressives running for statewide office has been based on the alignment with the Vermont Democratic ticket. And I don't think that you would see that kind of collaboration if you were talking about a contested primary. That being said, I do think that it's really important for us to have a, a spectrum of views uh, in these in potential primaries. Um, and as we talk about the future of the federal delegation, I would absolutely want to um, have somebody in discussion who um, was in the conversation left. That's my my personal political preference. I'm going to turn to one other reader question for now. Uh, David Delaney of Burlington asks, quote, do you see a potential Tim Ash comeback as plausible? Uh, Tim Ash, of course, is former Senate President Pro Tem from Burlington, um, and he uh, lost in a primary uh, for Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray last year. Lola, I'm going to just expand on that question a little bit before turning it over to you. Uh, there are a number of male politicians in there 40s and 50s who've climbed the political ladder sort of in the traditional manner and who a decade ago, um, I think would be seen as, as pretty obvious congressional contenders. So ones that um, jump to my mind at least are people like Attorney General T.J. Donovan, uh, former Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, who ran for governor last year, former House Speaker Shap Smith and uh, Tim Ash. Do you think that they're out of the running due to their demographics? Um, or do you think that we could see some of them uh, playing a role in these races as well. I don't think they are going to play a role in this next cycle in terms of the congressional races. I think TJ Donovan is widely seen as a potential contender for, for the governor's office, but he has indicated he's not interested in Congress um, and has also said that he would like to see a woman run. I don't think that being male precludes any of these men from running and even potentially winning one of these races, but I think it just makes it more awkward, right? Because it is a stated value of their party now to see more female representation. So it's 
a question that they will have to answer and and it could be a difficult question to answer, but I I don't think that it knocks them out of the running. Julia, most years there is not a lot of competition for statewide offices in Vermont. Um, trying to remember when you were running the Vermont Democratic Party, you probably went through a couple of lean years when there, when there was not uh, that much going on. But a vacancy at the top, like a U.S. Senate seat or a governorship, can really open things up and trigger a whole lot of down-ballot races. Um, the last two times this happened in Vermont was in 2010 and 2016. Both times there was an open uh, governor's seat, and there ended up being a, a whole bunch of pretty bad races. What would that look like in 2022 if there were to be a vacancy? I would anticipate we would see something close to a very polite free-for-all. I think that on top of the potential shifts for federal office, there's an open question about what happened in the governor's race, whether there would be any retirements, whether current politicos who would be a good fit for down-ballot races would throw their hat into a federal primary and forego the opportunity to, uh, to potentially step into statewide office. I can't speculate on who's going to do what, but I would say that anybody thinking about a statewide race or a down-ballot position in Vermont could have a, a really opportunistic 2022 to get there. And, you know, my universal advice is start getting your ducks in the row, uh, because if it's not this cycle, it may be the next one. And I think that folks, folks should be ready. Lola, uh, I think it's plausible that if there's a vacancy next year, you could see the sitting Senate President Pro Tem, the sitting Lieutenant Governor, um, and a number of sitting state legislators uh, running for higher office during the 2022 legislative session. How do you think that would affect legislative business? Well, I think it'll be a lot of fun to watch. We'll see, obviously, a lot of posturing. I think something to keep in mind, too, about the way that Vermont legislates, that it has two-year bienniums, right? So two-year legislative sessions. And quite often, the hardest stuff gets punted to the second year. And we're coming up on the second year of our biennium. And that is going to coincide with what could be a really massive election year, where we have all of the people you know, finally vying seats that, that, you know, are open for the first time in a long time. And so we're see these two things converge, which is all of the hardest conversations happening at the same time as everyone is running for office. I, I think that's going to have profound impacts on what does and does not get through. Something that has been flagged for me by multiple people is the fact that we have punted a conversation about a pension overhaul to next year. And I wonder what the likeliness that something that difficult makes it through if so many people are trying to be elected. You know, these are the kinds of grand bargains that require making a lot of people angry and a lot of people in your base angry, potentially. So it is going to have a profound impact on the legislative session, and it could be pretty, pretty chaotic. I would like to end on this note. Um, what do you want to see next year? Um, what would be an ideal turn of events, um, if I could ask that question? And Denise, I'm going to throw this at you. Sorry for the curveball, but what do you think? What do you want to see next year? So, I mean, I think like anyone who cares about the future of our country, you know, some kind of election that reflects uh, the kinds of leaders that, you know, we need to see in Washington is what I, I'm looking for. And, 
you know, I will say that I think we have been well served in so many ways by by our delegation. We've talked about a, a bit of this now, but I, I will just say maybe as the resident moderate that we, we need bipartisanship. We need compromise. I know some people think that's a four letter word, but we need it and we need to be able to make progress. And so when I hear people sort of talking about, um, you know, exasperated by the sort of state of affairs, and then they make these really hopefully partisan comments, it's just sort of like, okay, it's more of the same. So uh, for me, I'm looking for a leader that will bridge divides march towards progress and be willing to take slings from the pundits on cable news uh, and make it happen. Julia, you're up next and then Liz. I think regardless of what decisions are made by either Senator Leahy or Senator Sanders about their future, I'm looking at this from what I am experiencing right now. Currently, the climate in Washington around really critical and extremely popular funding that is going to be absolutely life-saving and life-changing for people in this country is um, is being held hostage under the name of compromise. Um, and so what I want to see happen is I want to make sure that we continue to be served by a delegation that holds very, very fast to our values and to the values of Vermonters, which are values of equity, values of justice, values of fairness. And I think that that we have been served immaculately by our delegation. And I am so proud that our tiny little state has managed to forestall so much disaster in Washington just by the folks who are representing us. I'm so grateful for that. And if our delegation decides that it's time to step down, I am really looking forward to a, a engaged and enthusiastic primary for a lot of women in the state. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Liz, what do you want to see next year? Well, I, I'll end with the question I started with. I started with, when is it someone else's turn? It's someone else's turn. So I would hope to see that would begin to happen in the state. Well, I want to thank each of you for joining us. Lola, Julia, Denise, Liz. We'll see you out there on the trail possibly next year or two years after that or six years after that. You can find more reporting on Vermont's congressional delegation and find the full video from Tuesday's live event at vtdigger.org. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. See you then.